And now, coming to the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary Kowolf on the very final episode of 2017, not that there were that many, of the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back, and we're back in the Gershwin Room, and, and for 2018, we're going to move to, I don't know, the Cole Porter Room, the Springsteen Room, the Jerome, the Andrew Lloyd, no, not the Andrew Lloyd Webber Room, I, w- I won't record from there. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's fair. Need to do Why not? Stuff. What would be wrong with the Andrew Lloyd Webber room? Um, You'd have memories. Well, actually, cats, all of cats, <laughs> pretty much all of cats. And Starlight Express. Um, I actually saw Starlight Express in London. Uh, and it's really impressive roller, sk- roller skating on rails. I can't remember a single song from it. Or was but, it the, the Phantom of the Opera, another one? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, well, was, okay, you're right. No, no Andrew Lloyd Webber room. No, okay, no Andrew Lloyd Webber, but... Um, I'd rather be in the Metallica what, room, frankly. We could do that, but I think... Nah. That, that, that's kind of what it's like going to Helsinki. Going, going to, going uh, to a, a, a pub is like there's a Metallica room. Anyway, so here we are, pretty much the last episode of the year. It's the 29th of December where I am, the 28th where you are. And we're here to talk about books we're looking forward to in 2018. Just very briefly before we do, though, you've just written your year in review for Locust Magazine. I'm I'm going to write mine or not. It's a coin toss. Quick, quick, quick synopsis. How do you now feel about the year we just got through? In terms of books and science fiction, well, I I felt fairly good about it. Uh, there was a wide there was there was at least one good book in a wide variety of categories. I don't think you could say it was a. There are some years in which we have four or five hard SF books that are really good, and and fantasy is weak. Um, others for fantasy is great. This time we had a couple of three or four solid. Hard SF books. We had, as, as we mentioned on the podcast, we had uh, John Kessel and, and Ian McDonald and especially Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson. Some a very strong fantasy novel, I thought, in John Crowley's Ka. So I thought that every one of these different subgenres that we talk about was well represented during the year. Um, and in a sense, I don't want a year full of masterpieces because that's too much to read. Um, well, there is that. So, there is that. And look, I, I um, thought there was a, some great left field choices, some great first novels, well, great, some really very good ones. You know, uh, we, we've talked on and off about Autonomous by um, Annalie uh, Newitz. Uh, there were books like Said uh, Hussain's book Jin City, which is very, very good. There was that book River of Ghosts, which I know you mm-hmm. reviewed for us and really liked. Uh, I think there was Nikki Dryden had a very good first novel. Uh, the Prey of... Uh, I forget the rest of the title. Bunch of really good first novels, which is in some ways the best thing you could see for the purposes of, for the sake of the genre. You know, because it's who you hand over to that is encouraging. You know, that Dora Goss delivered on her potential as a short story writer and delivered a mm-hmm. terrific first novel. You're right to say Kessel came back with you know, the first novel in 20 years or something. And it was very, very good. You know, and then there are always books that are overlooked, books that um, will be discovered in time, hopefully. But overall, it felt like a good and rewarding year. My question about the year, I was thinking about this when I was thinking, 
about what I'm what am I looking forward to? Because what you're looking forward to obviously depends largely on what you've liked in the past. And my question was, um, uh, let's take let's take Theodore Goss. One of the things I'm looking forward to is the second book uh, in the series that began with um, the Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. And uh, Dora had written a collection of short stories maybe ten years ago, which was very impressive. And she's done so. I've pretty much read most of her work, and I feel like I have. I want to follow Dora Goss. Uh, a few years ago, many years ago, I reviewed uh, Nadia Korofer's first novel, and I've read pretty much everything she's done. And the more you add to these things, Sam Miller, a uh, very good first novel last year, a YA novel that dealt with eating disorders in a creative way and a wonderful voice. He's got his first adult novel coming out now. So well, before, we, before we skip ahead to what we're looking forward to, though, isn't the point you're making that we've seen a group of writers over the last five years, particularly, say, mm-hmm. uh, evolve, uh, establish themselves as very major writers in the field? You know, Nadia Korofor yeah. evolved from being a promising-looking writer who had written one or two YA novels, I think it was, at the beginning of right. her career, and looked as though she could be a major voice who developed into one. Nora Jemison did exactly the same thing. Uh, has established herself as one of the most major, one of the most important voices in the field right now. You could make a very similar case for where Anne Leckie appears to be in her career. I mean, she delivered Provenance, which followed on from the, you know, the, the ancillary trilogy. Very well placed to establish herself as one of the preeminent voices of the moment. All that's very promising. But what it does for those of us who are supposed to be keeping up with the field is you keep adding to the list of writers you're following. I guess the question really behind this for any reader is how do you decide which writers to follow? And if you're following a lot of very good writers, and you're right, there are very good writers entering the field in droves in the last decade. Uh, Do you drop off the older writers? Do you stop reading? No, you don't do that because many of them are as good as ever. Do you? How do you make room for a Rivers Solomon, for example, whose first novel was was this year, The Unkindness of Ghosts? Uh, you can't tell what the next one's going to be, but I want to see it. I guess there's no answer to this question, but you can't read every book by every writer that you like realistically anymore. Well, I think one of the things, if you're reading for review particularly, that you tend to do is you do drop off some of those older writers if you feel like you have grasped what they're doing with their work, if they, are, if they tend to become yeah. familiar, then I think you, you, know, you just start to go, well, I like that, but I'm more interested in this other new thing. Without naming names, there are writers who are very good writers, and some of them are our friends, uh, who clearly know what they're doing and know how to do it and continue doing it year after year, uh, producing Fine work, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily going to surprise us. There are writers, again, even more seriously not naming names, because I saw a thread about this on a discussion board earlier today. There have been writers who do drop off late in their careers, who, who make spectacular entrances and, frankly, by the end of their careers, become less interesting. The one example that was mentioned in one of these discussions was Robert Delaney. Dynamite opening. I mean, he just impressed everybody with his novels in the 60s with Lord of Light and that sort of thing. By the time he was writing Amber novels in order to buy, build an addition to his house, it was largely phoning it in. That can happen. Uh, of course, 
you know, just to be sort of difficult, there are always the reverse examples. So that you've got, you know, say, you know, Gene Wolfe, who never drops off and continues yeah. writing major, uh, you know, novels right into his 80s. Uh, you get some writers who continue writing fine novels, but people stop paying attention. You know, Kate Wilhelm would be an example of that, I mm-hmm. think. You know, who's you know remained active and prolific, and yet isn't widely discussed anymore. And then there are writers whose work you, you know, may have loved at some point. I mean, I will out myself and say that I have not been, and I've said on the podcast before, not as entranced by the later novels of Tim Powers as other people have been. You know, mm-hmm. adored Declare, adored a bunch of the novels before it, not been beguiled by the post-Declare novels as much. Now, that's me as a reader rather than someone else, but that's very much how I felt about it. I, well, I think that can happen, and I think the other thing that can happen uh, is when you've got a reader that, who's... I mean, we're talking, I'm not talking about themes, I'm not talking about topics, I'm talking about styles, structure, the kinds sure. of things that sure. make you like a writer. Do you follow a... And one of the things I would love to do more than I'm able to is to follow a favorite writer into other genres. You mentioned Kate Wilhelm. I've only read one of her mysteries many years ago, but I gather she had Elizabeth Hand is certainly one of my favorite writers. I've read, well, I've read two of the um, mysteries that she's um, Cassie, Cassie, I forget her name. Uh, But they're terrific. Uh, I can't read. Nicola Griffith. Um, has written a, a historical novel. The next one's coming out. Uh, Hild was terrific. And, you know, if you're that far back in history and, and that's speculative, you can kind of make a case for for Hild uh, and its sequel being speculative fiction. But again, I've only read, I think, one or two of Nicola Griffith's mystery novels, and they're terrific too. Oh. Uh, and it's, it's a very healthy sign, I think, when authors can successfully branch into other genres. Uh, but I would like to think that they could keep the readers from the home genre with them, and I have to think if they if they don't keep me as regularly. Of course, I if I had my choice, I would have read all of the mysteries by all of these people. But these magazine review editors keep sending me assignments of stuff I have to read. Well, it's one of the ways you find new books. I mean, well, I mean, consider this: Would you actually have picked up? say, Dave Hutchison's Europe in Autumn when it came out, based on his preceding output. Not necessarily. Could easily have overlooked it. And then, of course, if you don't get first novels thrown at you, how do you ever become engaged by those? I mean, and if one of the most encouraging things of 2017 was first novels and novelists that you weren't familiar with, then... Surely, I mean, to me, this sounds very sort of get-out-of-jail-free-ish, I suppose. The, the book I am most looking forward to in 2018 is mm-hmm. the book I don't know about yet. Mm. Is the book by a writer I've never heard of, delivering a book that I didn't, didn't expect, that I can fall in love with when I encounter it. This has happened to me, and it's the best feeling for a reviewer, too. And I can think of specific examples of this, too, that I've mentioned before on the podcast. One was... Nala Hawkinson's first novel, Brown Girl in the Ring, which was sold to me enthusiastically by its publisher. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, I'll do this because you're nice to me and you're giving me a copy of it here at Book Expo. And it turned out to be terrific. And then later, Karen Lord's novel came out of nowhere. There are publishers you begin to trust with this mm-hmm. sort of thing. One of the things I'd say we can look forward to more or less in the indefinite future are really good short story collections coming from Small Beer Press. 
uh, because they put together writers. The other thing that comes to mind, uh, and I'm thinking, is not only do I want to discover this kind of novel by somebody you've never heard of, but there are novelists and writers I want to begin to follow and don't know if I'm going to have time. One of the books I'm looking forward to, and the only reason, not the only reason I'm looking forward to it, but one reason I am looking forward to it is that I didn't get around to reading Ilana Meyer's first novel. Mm-hmm. Now she's coming out called Fire, Fire Dance. And this is not because I didn't want to. I had very impressive people telling me I should read this book. And I intend to. And I probably will read it before I get a chance to read Fire Dance. But is, is it, isn't it difficult to pick up a, a writer with a second novel uh, if you haven't read the first? Very, particularly if it's in a series. There's something yeah. where you sit there. In fact, what you find, just, I find myself doing, and I can't say it for anybody else, I find myself waiting for the series that everybody's raving about to get out of the way so I can read the next book because I don't have time to go back and reread or read the preceding books in the series. That's true of a series, but there's, there's this thing happening now uh, which I think is interesting. It, it says so on, I happen to have the uh, advanced reading copy of this novel called Fire Dance, and it, it says, set in the world of Last Song Before Night. Now, set in the world of does not necessarily mean a sequel to. True. But then, of course, to be really irritating, you know, when you're reviewing, don't you need to be able to refer to the uh, your experience of reading the first book to be able to review the second book? That's a good question. If it's a standalone, if it's part of a series, obviously that's the case. Yeah. And I used to do this. I used to do this when I was much more naive and realized I could not get away with being lazy as much as I can now because I complete age. Um, years ago, uh, when um, the fourth novel, The Conqueror's, no, it was, it was The Conqueror's Child, the fourth novel in Susan McKee Charnas's four-volume series that began with Walk to the End of the World. And I had read Walk to the End of the World Maybe ten years earlier, mm-hmm. maybe more than that, and I thought partly because our browbeating former boss Charles Brown said you should read all of these and look at them. So I read all four novels in sequence, and it made it. it you realize this was a four novel, a, a, a four volume novel that was extremely powerful read in sequence, and looking at the earlier volumes made me understand the fourth volume. It didn't make the fourth volume any more successful because there had been too long a delay. But nevertheless, that's what I would ideally do. Yeah. You, you should – yeah, I mean you don't pick up uh, Gene Wolfe with the, with the last volume of the book of The Short Sun and hope you can fill in everything that's gone on before because yeah. you can't do that. No. I will say one of the books that I was most looking forward to for 2018 looks like it's not going to come out in 2018, and that's William Gibson's Agency which talks about being an April book and is now listed as a December book for 2018 and could very well slip slip into 2019. So that's not going to happen, and I don't think we can include it. And actually, in a weird way, it's a little bit of a relief because I was going to say that the two books that I knew were coming that I was most looking forward to were Agency and Stan Robinson's Moon Novel. Right. But the truth is it looks like those are both going to come out in 2019 rather than 2018. So it's good... It's almost good not to have a you know, have a year where the really what I consider to be the, you know, the senior, most established, most important ma- white male science fiction writers of a certain age aren't delivering to open everything up a little bit. Um, one book I'm really looking forward to 
is Shelter, which is the first book of the tales of the aftermath from Dave Hutchison. Now, th- this is what they're calling a rural English post-apocalypse survival story for a new generation. Uh, and it's set in, in, set in the Cotswolds at a time, you know, time after everything. Sounds almost Keith Roberts-ish to me. And mm. I think the, the Europe, you know, the shattered, the fractured Europe series was right. really impressive. So I'm very much looking forward to this one. I think that could be really something special. There's a novel which I don't know if we even had listed in the forthcoming novels, but I happen to have read for other reasons, that sounds, it's like in the same general territory, uh, and it's only coming out in Canada. Oh, okay. Uh, and that's Helen, Helen Marshall's first novel, Everything That Is Born, which uh, is very interesting. It's, it's, it's a somewhat post-apocalyptic novel. It's a disease novel. It's, uh, it, 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 well, it's not a disease novel. Basically, what's happening is that some strange autoimmune disease is affecting young people. And the protagonist's sister has contracted this condition, and they moved to Oxford. But England is falling apart, much in the same way that it was described. The flooding, the, 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 the general dissolution, the lack of uh, resources uh, is, is in England, not unlike the England we saw described in uh, James Bradley's played. Um, but then it turns into another kind of a novel and to another kind of a novel and becomes kind of a visionary fantasy at the end, uh, which I think is a sign of one of the most inter- interesting things I see as a trend, and that is playing with genres in a completely, um, I, I should say, irresponsible way. But it, the irresponsibility is what I like about it. There's, there's partly a historical parallel with the Black Plague. There's partly a medical mystery in it. There's partly a post-apocalyptic future in it, and there's partly a kind of myth of transformation that happens at the end that I shouldn't say anything more about. Okay, fair enough. I'm very much looking forward to a book that we weren't expecting to get at all. You mentioned in the run-up Nicola Griffith's Hild and the likely sequel to that, which she hasn't finished writing. She's not even particularly well progressed with writing yet. So I would think that at best is a 2019 or 2020 book. However, she did, I think much to her own surprise, finish a long novella called So Lucky, which is coming out from Farage Strauss-Giroux or somebody I think it is. Um, No, Macmillan. It's coming out from Macmillan in uh, about May. And it's a story about politics and disability and has a science fiction element to it as well. And I've been lucky enough to get an early copy of it. It looks fantastic. It looks like a really great book. She's such a good writer. And this one looks like it's really, really worth getting. And this is is going to be a standalone novella published as a book. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the the exact word count, so I don't know whether it's under 40,000 or over 40,000, but it's in that 150 to 200 page kind of length. We were talking about this in the review of, of 2017, that the novella is a standalone thing. The other thing, okay, let me let me add a title of something which I find totally unexpected, even though I already have a copy of it here, and that is the new novel by Hanu Rayanyemi called Summerland, which is not the sort, uh, uh, from the description at least, not the sort of thing we've expected from Hanu Rayanyemi. It's a posthumous fantasy mm-hmm. that deals with the afterlife, that deals with the British Empire taking over part of this afterlife called Summerland, and it involves Soviet spies and, and secret agents. So it's it sounds like the sort of thing that you might expect Lobby Tidar to come up with. 
but it's a Hanu Rayanimi novel, and he's somebody we expect with the hardest. We expect Greg Egan kinds of advanced mathematics and, and physics and that sort of thing. And this looks like an adventurous spy novel fantasy set in a posthumous world. You do see some of that in his short fiction, just hints of it in the short fiction. A little bit of it here and there, because you know, it was interesting in folklore, certainly. I'm going to be fascinated to, to see what the book's like. I've been waiting for it for a year and a half or more, because it's been around as a book that was, you know, I remember when it was sold, and you know, we're waiting to sort of hear more about it. Um, I, uh, I don't know whether you're much of a reader of Simon Ings, but you know, yes. he, doesn't, he doesn't write enough or deliver enough. And he has a new book coming out in late March called The Smoke uh, about a humanity split into three different sp- species. Or, uh, it's, it's science fiction. It's about a race to the stars. There's another great war looming. And it sounds like yeah, and it's based in in Yorkshire. Sounds like a really fascinating attempt to deal with you know, sort of the contemporary future that we're so interested in. So I'm really looking forward to that, and it sounds like a reasonable kind of companion piece you know, of, of cheery Brits writing about you know, sort of uh, future apocalypse with Dave Hutchison. Well, you mentioned when you mentioned um, Simon Ings, who's done some very powerful stuff about you're right, not enough at all. And it seems like in his career he's moved from the far future with something like City of the Iron Fish to the near future, uh, which I think is fascinating. Another writer, and I don't think she's got a book coming out this year. If she does, I hope I get a chance to read it, that I've, I've started following with great enthusiasm is Nina Allen. Um, I didn't see anything listed as, as forthcoming from her. I don't know what she's working on. Uh, but nevertheless, there is this kind of uh, really literary, uh, sophisticated near-future apocalyptic Brit- Britain subgenre, which is almost a kind of contemporary, cynical version of what Brian Aldous used to call the cozy catastrophe, except yeah. it's not cozy anymore. But it is a thing. Yep. Um, let me throw out a couple of... Oh, okay, I already mentioned uh, one of the ones I'm really looking forward to, which is Blackfish City by Sam J. Miller, the first adult novel. Uh, and again, there's it's, it's a post-climate disaster kind of thing um, and it looks like it might turn into a fantasy as well but the and it looks like it's going to be completely different from the art of starving which fascinates me because he he clearly had a voice he had a thing going with a kind of disaffected sarcastic young adult voice the kind of the kind of voice that makes Holden Caulfield sound like a Victorian uh, because it's so contemporary and so Cynical. This is, doesn't look like that at all. And I'm always fascinated with somebody produces a new novel that doesn't look at all like the previous novel. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I was so impressed with The Art of Starving. I think it's a, a wonderful first novel. I mean, I, I don't know that I can say that I loved it because I don't know that it's a lovable book, but I think it's a very fine book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's a risk-taking book. And, yeah. and this is the other thing that fascinates me about, about writers like Miller and... Uh, well, any number of the other writers we're talking about, there's 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 a certain amount of risk in making what what appears in the first part of that novel, making eating disorders look like a superpower. We find out that's not really the case at all. But nevertheless, he takes very significant risks with it. Yeah. Uh, a book that I, in fact, have already read, which makes it the safest kind of book to look forward to slash recommend, and falls also into the, the, the novella category, is the, I guess you'd call it the, the debut book 
from Kelly Robson, the Canadian mm-hmm. writer who's about eight or ten short stories into her career. You know, she had a novella out about three years ago from Tor, The Water of Versailles, which was terrific, and had a couple of very interesting stories out this year. And in about March, April of next year, I don't have the exact schedule in front of me, she has a science fiction, time travel, anthropology piece called God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, which tells of a bio-modified, late-middle-aged scientist and a small team who travel back in time to get information about the Tigris-Euphrates river system so they can re-establish it in a devastated climatic future where people live below ground. And it's great. I love it. It's a great piece. And it's, it's listed as March in yeah, the yeah. Locust Forest. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's also a great title. Mm. I mean, it's, I, I, because the first thing I w- want to ask her is, she must have read James and the Giant Peach at some point. I mean, just whether it has anything to do with Roald Dahl or not. Mm. If you put each in the title, you're going to have people thinking about Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me add a couple of titles that, uh, again, since you mentioned things, these are things I've already read. These are things I've already reviewed, and they're both short story collections. Uh, one is um, Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories, Vandana Singh's first collection of stories. Mm-hmm. And this is somebody else who's been absolutely fascinating, uh, very uh, capable of very hard science fiction, uh, capable of very kind of uh, Indian mythology-based fiction. There's one called the Sky River Sutra in here, for example. Uh, and it's as varied and surprising as I hoped it would be uh, because I'd read a good deal of her short fiction over the years. Uh, some of these, most of these are are classifiable as hard science fiction. But again, with this cultural perspective, this culturally sophisticated perspective of uh, somebody who has studied both physics and uh, Hindu mythology, for example, it's a combination of things I haven't quite seen. It's, 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 it's a unique voice. We're getting a lot of international voices, multicultural voices, um, but... There are very few writers that seem to be occupying the exact space that Vandana Singh has been occupying. Fair enough. A couple of years ago. Yes, sorry, go ahead. uh, The that goes with that is Joe Walton Starlings, which is, I believe, her first collection of short fiction as well. And it's fascinating. It's got some wonderful pieces in it. It's it's, It's got a kind of almost apologetic tone. I should say that this is also a collection of her poetry, uh, and the poetry is significant to making out the collection. But what's interesting uh, is that some of the stories are terrific. Some of them, one of them, I think the Panda Coin was originally an Eclipse, yeah. Um, Eclipse, it was one, yeah, one of the very first, one called Three Twilight Tales that I know she wrote for an um, uh, anthology from um, the Firebirds, one of the Firebirds anthologies from Sharon November. So there are wonderful things in it, but she's, as she says in the introduction, not naturally a short fiction writer. So what you get are interesting pieces of short fiction, not all of which we would describe as traditional short stories. Uh, some are beginnings of novels, some are ideas, some are extended jokes, uh, some are riffs on other kinds of things. It, it raises an issue which I think is fascinating because it's the same issue that I thought M. John Harrison's collections of short stories, you should come with me now, raised, which is that Short fiction is not always a traditional short story. No, it's not. There are lots of other things you can do in short fiction, and, and she does that here 
just as Anne John Harrison did in his collection. And there are things which work in the structure of a short story collection of a book that don't actually work very well as standalone pieces because of the way they resonate as pieces of narrative. I agree. And that's why uh, a a good short story collection these days, I think, is organized the way a good concert lineup is organized. Um, You know, you have a couple of hits. I mean, you don't want to see... Well, okay, with the exception of Neil Diamond fans, you don't want to see the same things over and over and over again. You want to see some new things and some familiar things. Exactly. A um, couple of things here, since you did a couple, huh? Uh-huh. Uh, I am greatly looking forward to a book you, I guess we might call associational or tangential to the field a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ellen Clay just delivers her first new novel in a handful of years, Out of Left mm-hmm. Field, which is coming out from... A Viking in May. It's you, should un- mention, you should mention that the title of the novel is Out of Left Field, that she's not delivering it from Out of Left Field. Did I suggest that I was? <laughs> anyway, it's a baseball novel. It's, it's set in the novel. 1950s. There's, it's, it's the world of Sputnik and Leave it to Beaver. Uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that she did with the Green Glass Sea so well, and I'm really, really eagerly looking forward to it. I loved what she does with history. I love the kind of research. I, when she was writing a novel, I took her to a Chicago Cubs game because it was one of the few places where you could see a baseball game in a stadium that looked pretty much like it did in the 50s. Yeah. Um, and and she'd done more research than you can imagine on women in baseball, so it's uh, it's, it's it's clearly going to be uh, a, a feminist novel as her other young adult novels have been, but it's going to be a terrific sports novel too. And one of the things we don't see a lot of mm-hmm. in science fiction are good sports novels. True, I, don't think I can name any actually. Uh, no, I mean well, there are sort of science fiction fantasy kind of crossovers. There have been tangential stuff. Uh, Stan Robinson did some stuff with Baseball on Mars. There's a pair of novellas coming out as a book in the first half of the year from PS Publishing by Gregory Benford and Gordon Eklund that are Mm. baseball stories on Mars. Novellas, a pair of novellas. So that's something to look out for if you're interested in sports and science fiction. Absolutely. A couple of years back, uh, Naomi Novik, who was best known for the Temeraire series of novels, out of left field delivered an absolutely fabulous standalone fairy tale fantasy novel called Uprooted, which went on to win major awards. Mm-hmm. And she's got a new book which expands on a short story she did for an anthology two years ago uh, called Spinning Silver. And I'm greatly looking forward to it. Now, Novik is a wonderful storyteller. Uprooted was fantastic. And this is the kind of book that I potentially is a, a World Fantasy Award winner. That's exciting to think. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me see what else uh, I've got here. I've, 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 I'm, I'm look, actually, I've been looking at the books that I have in my pile, some of which I've already reviewed. Um, one of which is... Um, Actually, a January title, so it's, it's it's worth mentioning, and that is the collection of K.J. Parker novellas called The Father of Lies. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about this, first of all, 
the first thing that strikes me about reading a bunch of these novellas, some of which have been published as standalones by subterranean press uh, over the last year or two, is that he may be one of the funniest writers working in the field right now, even when he's writing as K.J. Parker and not as Tom Holt. Uh, one of the things when we had him on the podcast a few years ago was that Tom Holt was was writing these uh, madcap comic mythological fantasies. He was the funny guy. But it seems to me that Parker's completely frustrated, exasperated voice of semi-competent heroes uh, is one of the most refreshing things that you can read. And, uh, and all of these are delightful in various um, various ways. The lead novella, for example, The Things We Do for Love, is simply about a guy who marries a witch and then he can't get rid of her. It's a, it's, it's a screwball comedy from the 1930s done up in high fantasy style. And he's, he's one of the writers who, he also had, um, the, his novel has been serialized over the last two years, it's finally out. But he's also somebody who sets his stories in a common history but they're not sequels to each other. By yeah, the yeah. Okay. Book I'm hugely looking forward to coming out in September from our friends at Tor is Joe Walton's space opera Poor Relations. Yes, that will be on. The uh, so in the 24th century, life's supposed to be as, as precarious as Dickensian England. Um, knowing Joe's work, I think it's it should be extraordinary. Uh, I think they described it as what uh, Mansfield Park on Mars. There you go. That was apparently Walton's description of the novel, and I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Well, Walton is also one of our most insightful critics, and she has a collection of her uh, columns about the Hugo winners coming out as a book, which is, uh, I think, called an informal history of the Hugos. And we've read a lot of those so far. But again, somebody who's gone through and read the Hugo nominees for what fifty years. Mm-hmm. And and made really good comments on. I mean, she she had a collection of her nonfiction a couple of years ago called um, "What's So Great About This Book," and this looks to me like uh, another collection of appreciations, which I think is important because more than people like you and I, more than reviewers, and certainly more than academics like myself, Joe Walton has the capacity for gener- generating interest among younger readers. In some of these classic stories that she's read, she's a she's not only a very strong writer; she's a very strong science fiction fan, hmm. and shares that with us. Last year's John Kessel novel, uh, "The Moon and the Other," was a bit of an unexpected gift. I mean, we're saying how it, took, it came out twenty you know, twenty years after his previous book. He's immediately followed it with another new novel, "Pride and Prometheus," which is based on a novelette of his that was extremely widely praised about basically the intersection of what the title suggests is pride and prejudice meets frankenstein with mary mm-hmm. bennett falling for victor frankenstein and his and befriending the creature and knowing how clever a writer uh, john is uh i can't wait to read it. it's coming out in, in sort of late february and looks like one of the highlights of the year and based on the story pride and prometheus which is the sort of thing that I, I think, again, is risk-taking in all sorts of ways. I mean, you, um, apart from the fact that you... Well, you, Kessel has always had a, a certain amount of risk-taking in writing about gender issues in ways that most male hard SF writers wouldn't undertake. He's undertaking a Jane Austen sensibility 
And he's doing it with equal respect, both for Austin and, and, and for Shelley. And, of course, he's dealing with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, not the movie Frankenstein. So that balance of tone is what made the story work, and I have no doubt it'll work mm. as well in the novel. So I'm looking forward to this as well, and I hope that um, in the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, it will become one of the major books of the year. I think you're right. Where'd you go? Well, okay, let me ask you about some books that I don't know much about except having seen them listed. There's a new Greg Egan novel coming out from Subterranean, or is that... It's a novella. Novella. Wow. Yeah, that's Phoresis, I think it's called. Phoresis, yes. Brand okay. new hard SF novella, about 40,000 words of new fiction. What about the new James S.A. Corey novel, Persepolis Rising? Persepolis Rising is a 2017 title, came out in December. It is the seventh of the Expanse novels. Okay, so, uh, one that, um, well, this is a novella which I'm, I'm reading right now, and it's uh, it's another subterranean press standalone novella, but it's uh, it's Elliot de Bodard's The Tea Master and the Detective. How is that? It's pretty good. I mean, it's, I'm, I was, intim- I, I am, I will admit, I am, and I am intimidated by Elliot, Elliot de Bodard's Zuan universe. It's, it's complicated. It's got alternate histories. It's got all kinds of things involving uh, Vietnamese and and Aztec mythology that I, I I've liked all the stories I've read in, but I feel like I'm behind. This starts off like a lot of fun. Uh, it's 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 got a it's got a, a sense of humor to it. It's got a mystery to it. It's got a kind of uh, archness to it that so far. I'm finding very enjoyable, and I think I would find enjoyable even if I knew nothing about this universe at all, uh, which I think is very important for a writer who's uh, trying to bring people into a universe that she's developed mostly over a series of short fiction uh, stories. Fair enough. Ian MacDonald is one of the best science fiction writers working today. He does fall into that older white guy generation, I suppose, but he has, for the last 20 years particularly, I think, deliberately pushed the the, the work that he's doing into broader and more varied ways. Ever since he he started off the Cyberbad work uh, and did uh, River of Gods and then on through the, the novels that followed, this year we'll see the publication of the third and I think final book in the Lunar series, Moon Rising which I'm looking forward to very much. I love the first two books, and I think this one should be great. And <clears throat> although it's a conflict of interest to say so, he wrote one of the fav- my, my favorite things that I've ever worked on, uh, a novella called Time Was, which is coming out in April from Tor. I think he's a writer. Uh, we were talking about writers uh, who drop off, and we, we didn't mention writers who begin with... Um, some very, very good but powerful work and seem to move into a kind of groove. I mean, before the, um, before the River of Gods, uh, his, his series of what I think of as international futures, uh, in India, Brazil, uh, and, and, and so forth, uh, he was doing uh, Hearts, I think, I forget, was this the English or the American title, Hearts, Hands, and Voices? Um, which was very good. It was kind of in Jeff Ryman territory, but wasn't as distinctively his as his later work became. And his career has been fascinating to watch because 
it's become more his own thing as he's gone on. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, one of the things we see with the Luna series is that they're they're very strong science fiction novels, but they're a lot of fun, and you can see he's having fun doing them. Very much. Uh, just could see he was doing his having fun doing his uh, young adult alternate universe series. I'm also looking forward to James Bradley's next book. Yes, I, what do you know about? Well, I, I know it's coming out. I've seen a title. I forget what it is right now, which is really not helpful, actually. But it's the second book in the Silent Invasion series, and that's due out in the first quarter of the new year. And I, I really, really enjoyed the Silent Invasion. I think it's a wonderful book and can't wait to, to, to read the second one. Okay, that'll be something to look forward to as well. Let me ask you about, because, uh, no, let me mention this first of all, because I mentioned how much I enjoyed uh, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. And the July title, the title of the July sequel is European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman. Um, those titles are either absolutely terrific or precious or both. Uh, yes. But it's the sort of, I would have, I would have picked up that title, uh, I think, and, and looked at it. And hope that she can deliver on this and hope that it isn't coy. There was nothing coy about uh, any of her fiction that I've read and especially about The Strange Case. So so European Traveling for the Monstrous Gentlewoman, which is, I think, a direct sequel, uh, is something we should look forward to. One of the things, speaking of novellas, that I know you've been working with uh, is a novella which has already been published but apparently not in complete form, and that's the Caitlin Kiernan Black Helicopters which is announced for, um, when is it? April, I think. May. May, May. Okay. May. May from Tor.com. Yeah. And I don't know what the difference is, but the original version of it I thought was terrific. Um, and it was only available originally as a kind of bonus for somebody who bought one of her collections, right? Yeah, originally, I mean, I think Caitlin... If I, and if I misremember this, I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Caitlin wrote Black Helicopters in about two weeks. Uh-huh. And there was always, I think, she felt some work missing from it. And when we'd published Agents of Dreamland at Tor during 2017, it was very well received, and it opened up the opportunity to present Black Helicopters again. And Caitlin took it back and revised it and added, I think, three major new scenes to it, expanding the length of the book by about 20%, and really giving it an additional... I think depth and resonance that it lacked before, even though I think it had that to it. It also gave it more coherence and arguably maybe there's a, a, a slight lack of clarity in the original version, which this now brings. So it's a significant ex- expansion of it. It's not just a reprinting of it. And it then will lead into a book to be published later uh, called The Tinderloss Asset, which will be the third of the, the novellas. Uh-huh. Well, speaking of completing novellas, we haven't mentioned it yet, but we should mention that Nnedi Okorafor's third novella in the Benti series is out in a matter of weeks now, mm-hmm. uh, Benti, the, the Night Masquerade, which is an interesting um, series because it's not a novel in three parts. It really is a sequence of three novellas, something like what Le Guin used to call a story suite, and it works best as three novellas. Uh, the first is a space opera. The second is a kind of Home, you can't go home again, uh, fable. And the third is a, a really a, a kind of phantasmagoria 
based, again, as many of her things have been on uh, the mythology of, of the Hemby um, and some of the other African peoples that she writes about. I think it's a work that surprised her from, I mean, from my, re- my recollection of our conversation with her earlier in the year. It very much surprised her uh, you know, that Binti came along, to, came to her at all, and it was then mm-hmm. as warmly received as it has been. And, yeah, I think it's going to be – well, you've, you've read and reviewed it and have said that it's a terrific yeah. story. So It is. I mean, she, she is getting more confident as a writer. Uh, and, and for somebody as young as she is, and with you know, with a, a day job as a professor and and, a, and 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 a delightful teenage child to and raising a teenage child is something you should know about. Well, yes, uh, she meant to actually get all over the world and do all the stuff that she does is really impressive. It is, it is. Richard Morgan is going to deliver his first book in a good handful of years. Uh, just as Altered Carbon becomes a TV series from Netflix with a budget of about $55 trillion, uh, his new book, Thin Air, will come out in July. And it's supposed to be a tale of corruption and abduction set on Mars. And I think from the sounds of it, it's very much in one of the new traditions of science fiction we're seeing right now. I mean, I think the books we st- I started off talking about, the, the Simon Ings and the Dave Hutchison, sit in this group of books that are confronting... What's happening to the world, the, you know, the world here on Earth in the next 100, 150 years and how we're going to deal with the various political, climatic, what, economic, whatever uh, challenges we're going to face. Then there are these books very much like the Expanse books, I mean, the Persepolis Rising, whatever, from James Corey, yeah. that are populated solar system books, books that sit on a spectrum from, you know, 2312, the Stan Robinson book, across to the Corey books. And this sounds very much in the middle of that kind of thing, that, that kind of territory. and should be a lot of fun. I wonder if this is happening because we talked about this in, in, in the context of any number of writers starting, maybe starting but maybe not starting with Paul McCauley, who are sh- kind of shrinking the space opera, opera back to solar system size. Alistair Reynolds was one of those, and mm. he has uh, Elysium Fire coming out. January. Uh, January. About now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sequel so, to The Prefect. So, and, and that'll be fun. Uh, and one of the things that I, I did occur to me with um, the, just having seen the previews for um, Annihilation and then realizing that Richard Morgan is doing this and realizing that uh, I, I rewatched uh, because I was with some people who hadn't seen it, Arrival, this is a kind of parenthesis to our whole conversation. But it seems to me that science fiction movie makers have discovered that there are more writers out there than Philip K. Dick. I mean, <laughs> well, yes. More, there's Ted Chang. There's Jeff Vandermeer. All these things are getting made into movies now, which well, I find. It's true. I, mean, I, I read an interview with Ridley Scott, uh, who was talking about his new movie uh, and about Blade Runner 2049. And the mm-hmm. one thing he was saying was that you have these enormous entertainment conglomerates now that are desperate for stuff to produce. Really, really fascinating, deeply desperate. I mean, Netflix wants to produce all original content, which it doesn't do now. Amazon, who just paid a quarter of a billion dollars for Lord of the Rings rights. You know, these kind of places, they're looking to spend a lot of money, and that means that there's a very good chance that that high-quality fiction is going to get picked up and remade. You know, I mean, I think it was Nora Jemison's books have been picked up. I know uh-huh. Nadia Korfor's had work picked up. Um 
it's only a matter of time that almost anything could potentially get picked up. Whether it gets made and other things, we know. I mean, Luna, uh, the, the Ian McDonald books we were talking about earlier, were picked up by CBS and then I think transferred to somebody else. So mm. it's a bit of a, an if as to what gets made, but it's going to be very interesting. It'll be very interesting, and it's fascinating to me that somebody is reading books because Altered Carbon is, what, 30, 20 years old, 30 must years be, old? must be 20, 20 plus years old, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and a so book, somebody, I, yeah. Somebody must be showing these people books and explaining what's in them. Yes, very much. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the path regularly is, but there's, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of different paths to get pr- produced. I see that uh, as well. John Scalzi's Old Man's War has been picked up. That seems to be picked up. And, and I can see why it's too. Uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams is premiering within weeks, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but again, the encouraging thing to me was that a lot of the stuff we're talking about is not by Philip K. Dick, um, which Hollywood, as a parentheses, has never understood a word of in any <laughs> of the films they've made from any of his stories. And I guess you'll be lining up to read Alternate Roots, which is the new Tim Powers novel that's coming out in August. A 300-page th- novel, very much in the same territory, as it, as it sounds like, as, as the trilogy he did for Tor back in the, I guess, the late 90s. Uh, it's described as, you know, the, it's about the ghosts of the freeway are rising, something weird is happening in Los Angeles. Yeah, and that, that's territory he's explored before. Right, his California series... Uh, I, I, I'm very fond of his Victorian series, but that's partly because I'm very fond of Victorian literature and I like the historical. But but the, uh, uh, the, the 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 Las Vegas Los Angeles axis that he wrote about with things like Last Call were, were, were very very enjoyable and very intelligent and, and, and very well researched as well. What do we know about the new Connie Willis novel, Terra Intermita? N- nothing except I'm going to guess it's the Area 51 novel she's been working on for a long time. It sounds like it from the title, and it sounds like from the title that she can be one of the funniest writers alive. She also is somebody who's capable of – she, she did a short book about Area 51, a short nonfiction book a couple of years ago. Very difficult thing for humorists to do is handle lunatics with respect, uh, if that makes any sense at all. I think if she can bring the kind of discipline – that she showed in Lincoln's Dreams to the book, oh. then it could be really interesting. Uh, well, I, I think that's the sort of thing. Well, I mean, it's the sort of thing that fascinates me because there is this whole category of UFO cult science fiction. Andy Duncan has one of the best stories uh, in, in, in that area. And you don't want to make these people into parodies. You don't want to make them into, uh, you know, hicks and, and lunatics and fringe people. You want to understand where they're coming from. Um, and it's possible to do that, but it's also possible to miss the tone. And I think I have confidence that Connie can get the tone right. I think you, you, you could well be correct. In October, Gardner Dozois will deliver the latest in his string of mega anthologies. Last year, mm-hmm. he published The Book of Swords, I think with Bantam, which was a large very large, Swords and Sorcery anthology, which was also, frankly, for my money, the best single fantasy anthology of 2017. And a companion to it, The Book of Magic, uh, the second of what will ultimately, I think, be four books or more uh, that he's doing with Bantam, along with The Book of Legends and The Book of Beasts. 
uh, is coming out. And that ha- he released a table of contents or an almost complete table of contents for, that, for the other day. And has Andy Duncan and KJ Parker and all kinds of interesting things. And that should be really terrific. But these are the ones he's doing on his own as yes. part yeah. the ones he does with George Martin. Yeah. Uh, and, I should, yeah. and since I mentioned anthology, oh, I should just quickly sneak in as well. Uh, I know you've reviewed it for us already, so you can talk to it a little bit. But uh, Nava Wolf and Dominic Priscien's follow-up to the, to the Starlet Wood, their Robots versus Fairies, which very much seems like a, a, a riff on Zombies versus Unicorns from a handful of years back. It could be a riff on. It could be a riff on Plants versus Zombies, for that matter. Going back even further, um, it's 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 I think a mistake to think of it as a follow-up uh, to the original anthology, which was clearly looking at folkloristic fairy tale materials from a new angle. It was a uh, it was a terrific anthology, The Starlet Wood. This one is a lot more fun. It's not a series of stories. And this is something I had to learn by reading the anthology. I thought, okay, this is going to be zombies versus unicorns. It's going to be zombies versus planets. It's going to be X versus Y. Only one story in the collection, Catherine Valenti's, deals with zombies versus, uh, mm. deals with robots versus fairies. The rest of them are riffs on robot stories or fairy stories um, with little afterwards, sort of sometimes too cute afterwards by the contributors saying, I'm with Team Fairy or I'm with Team Robot. The whole team thing, frankly, irritates the hell out of me. That's irrelevant because they produced some terrific stories. People came up with originally a very original ideas, which in effect illustrate their preference for essentially writing robot stories versus writing fairy stories. Uh, it becomes a kind of meta-discussion about the virtues of science fiction versus, versus the virtues of fantasy. Um, and so you're watching a bunch of stories in dialogue with one another and having a lot of fun and getting drunk at the poker table and you know sometimes doing sloppy things, but it's, it's, it's a very enjoyable anthology. And, you know, look, I, I, I would hark back to something you said at the beginning of this discussion. I still think, for all that I think, many of these books that we're talking about are going to be wonderful, and I stand by my recommendations, as I'm sure you stand by yours. Wow. The book we're going to carry away as being the book we remember from the year will most likely be something we didn't expect. No, there are things, and one of the things I look at, one of the things that's worth mentioning, the way Locus organizes its forthcoming books, and the last forthcoming books was... In the, in the current issue of Locus, there is, and I go through the list, and I go through selected books by author. Now, this is what, what I was talking about earlier, about how do you know which authors to follow. You immediately go through this list of selected books by author and check off the names that you know. There's a new Yoon Ha Lee novel. There's, you know, the Kessel novel we talked about. There's a Claire North novel. And as much as I have had problems with some of her work, Nothing has looked like anything else, so I didn't know what 84K is going to look like. But after this list of books by author, there's this much longer list of complete books by publisher, which is full of things I've never heard of, and that, things uh, I don't know what they're going to do. And the inherent flaw, though I understand it is as energetically compiled as is possible, is that are all the publishers small, large, non UK, non-Australian, non-British, who are producing excellent work that Locus hasn't got into that list. You know, it hasn't been mentioned for whatever reason. So there's a, a whole spectrum of other books out there as well. 
And there are books, uh, there are always, although less so in the past, books that, for whatever reason, don't get promoted to the science fiction and fantasy readership because they want to find mainstream readerships for them. I mean, it would have had Daryl, a good example from last year, uh, based on the publicity that I saw, because I get stuff as a freelance reviewer for other venues besides Locust, but Daryl Gregory Spoonbender was promoted so thoroughly as a kind of mainstream, wacky family comedy uh, that had Daryl not had a significant reputation in the science fiction and fantasy field already, I don't think they would have paid much attention to us at all. Probably so. I mean, I will say as well, and I, it echoes other things we've said, that it also encourages me that not only do I have an array of books that I'm looking forward to from 2018, but I already have a handful of books I'm looking forward to for 2019. Which is encouraging, but they, you know, that's, that, that's insider trading. Again, you're talking about things that you know about that many of our listeners... No, no, that's, that's not true. People know about the Stan Robinson. People know about the, um, the William Gibson. That was announced last year. It's not a great extrapolation to say that Charlie Jane Andrews, who's been talking on Facebook about edits as a book coming out in 2019, mm. it's, it's not off the charts to talk about Ken Liu concluding the, Dar- the, the, the um, Dandelion Dynasty right. series, which will be 2019. You know, these books, which you know, we know and are looking forward to. I think it's really encouraging that's the case. And, oh, I know what I forgot because I didn't see it on any of the lists. There's uh-huh. also a new uh, Union Alliance novel coming from C.J. Cherry, her first oh. for some years, and I'm looking forward to that very much because I know you've not read much of her work, but I've read a lot and generally love it. I, well, this is what I talk about following writers. I did not pick up Cherry. I'm down below station is, what, 30 years ago, and... I liked what I read. I, I ended up not picking up on, on, on later stuff. Um, we should mention that, okay, you have anthologies coming out in 2018 and 2019, do you not? I do indeed, yes. Infinity's End will come out in July, mm-hmm. I think. And then Mission Critical will come out in 2019. And, you know, who knows, maybe something else will land as well. Uh, Infinity's End will be, for the time being, the the end of the Infinity Cycle. That'll be seven anthologies in, in that set, and that's been fun. And also, you know, Best of the Year. I forgot what preview it was I was seeing at the movies the other night, but the subtitle of some big blockbuster science fiction movie is Infinity War. Um, no, it's not. It's not the subtitle. The new Avengers movie is called Infinity War. Infinity, that's what I'm thinking, the Avengers Infinity, where I thought, hey, people will mistake that for your anthology and you'll make a lot of money. I, I, I wish that that, that that might be the case, but I, I feel confident that people will be able to distinguish between a half a billion dollar Marvel movie and my military science fiction anthology. I guarantee you, I guarantee you. People will be googling Infinity Wars, and you'll be selling copies. Hey, look from your word, from your mouth to the, to to cash registers, and also my little bit of putting the pressure on the world, putting it back on you, Gary. Here's a book that I'm looking forward to in 2018. There is a nonfiction book that you're comp- you're working on right now, and are hoping to publish. And I know it's not been acquired, so I'm not going to give anybody any information about it unless you choose to, but. It looks like, to me, hands down, the most interesting 
non-fiction book about science fiction fantasy that I could imagine. I'm desperate to read it. I really hope it comes out in 2018. Is it fair to say without giving away too much, that because I'm reading it in manuscript right now, that it is a major study of one of the major feminist science fiction writers ever by one of the major science fiction feminist writers ever? Yes, I think that's a very fair call. Um, the moment you told me about it, I think the first words out of my mouth were that I thought already it was, you know, be a shoe in for the Hugo. Uh, and not because of any kind of insider f- fixing, but because I know that the writer of the book is one of the most clear-eyed, coherent, cogent, intelligent writers I know. And I know that the subject of the book is one of intense interest to the science fiction and fantasy community. So I, I would I expect it to be picked up and lauded. It, it's one of those books that's missing in the field. So I'm, I'm super, I mean, I'm genuinely very excited about it. Um, so yes, I, I hope that comes out this year. And that, that is something to do with a, a series of books I'm editing. To answer some questions which I have not been asked for a couple of years, well, not been asked for over a year because people are only being polite because they think I've failed. There is going to be a Library of America two-volume set of American yes. Science from the 1960s, which probably is now going to be a 2019 set of books. Uh, okay. But it's, it's, it's definitely going to happen. Uh, one of the things that is going on um, with the Library of America, which we should mention, they've already published um, four volumes of Ursula – no, Three volumes of Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will be more to come. The, uh, the Hainish stories are out. I believe, and if I'm incorrect about this, I will probably hear from my editors there. I believe they're doing a uh, Madeleine Ingle volume at some point soon, which is interesting because, again, we were talking about actual writers who are getting movies made, and now there is an enormously expensive epic movie of The Wrinkle in Time, of A Wrinkle in Time which I don't know what to make of at all based mm. on the people. It has Oprah in it. You know, it could be a subject. It looks great. The, the uh, Verna Dundarnay's <laughs> one. Uh, actually, there's a bunch of stuff coming up that looks really interesting. I saw the trailer for Mortal Engines, which is put mm. together by Peter Jackson's people and all kinds of things. But one thing that could be a subject of a future podcast, Gary, you're compi- you've compiled you know, American science fiction novels of the... 50s and 60s, and you've got the 70s coming out at some point in the future. An American fantasy novels would be quite an interesting project. This is very interesting. You should mention that because it's something we've talked about before. I've had conversations with uh, the people. I, they, they don't mind my talking about them. I, we, we did a panel discussion about the Medicra, which was recorded by them. Um, fantasy is a step behind science fiction and working its way into the Library of America. And it has to do not with any particular set of values or any particular person's attitude. Uh, There are people on the board of the Library of America, who include Jonathan Lethem, for example, who clearly want to promote science fiction. But if you look at the way things have been quote-unquote canonized in that series, it began with hard-boiled mystery fiction uh, of various kinds, moved into... Uh, Lovecraft and, and Philip K. Dick. Uh, so with with the promotion of contributors like Peter Straub and Jonathan Lethem, uh, they moved into that area. Fantasy is has been a more problematical area. 
uh, for various reasons. Uh, I don't know exactly why, but the same same issue comes up with the editorial board, frankly, at the University of Illinois Press, which doesn't want to deal with fantasy just yet. For whatever reason, in academia and literati circles, science fiction has become more respectable than fantasy, or I should say has become respectable earlier than fantasy. I think it's more manageable than fantasy. It probably is. No one would doubt, if if Tolkien had been an American writer, there's no doubt he would be in the Library of America. Um, well, well you, you do get that challenge, I mean, when it comes to choosing fantasy novels to put into something like this, of multi-volume works, of works, frankly, written for children, mm-hmm. which people uh, may, in, the America, in, in something like Library of America, hesitate to include in a, a compendium of finest novels. Um, what do you do with a work like, say, Game of Thrones, if you considered it was worthy? Uh, it, it stretches over a trillion billion pages. Right. You can't really deal with that sort of thing. You can't even deal with James Branch Cabell, because you've got basically 11 volumes mm. of significant, enormously significant fantasy, but not really manageable. If you have a a writer like Shirley Jackson with a handful of important novels and a handful of important short stories, Shirley Jackson is in the Library of America. She is hmm. thus canonized. And how do you um, handle um, the split between fantasy and horror? How do you handle the split between fantasy and science fiction, for that matter? True, sure. How do you deal with the fact that you're dealing with uh, Ursula Le Guin's Hainish novels are now there, but I would have to ask. I don't honestly know if the Earthsea novels are on their way. Yeah. Well, that goes to show there's a lot to talk about in the year ahead. We might leave it at this point. We're over our hour, um, but this will go out very shortly. I think uh, it looks like it's going to be a really interesting year ahead. Uh, we have a year of Tor novellas and Pierce novellas and subterranean novellas. We have a, a, a spectrum of science fiction, and fantasy, and horror coming from the world around, many of which we've not even come close to touching on. So and it should be really because interesting. Because of our not coming close to touching on them, we should invite our listeners to remind us of things we've overlooked, things we might not have heard of that are coming out in 2018. Not necessarily your own seven-volume self-published decology, whatever, uh, but things and, and there are things we've missed. There are things we don't know about. And as you mentioned earlier, it's the things we don't know about that make the year surprising and wonderful. And where should they get to us? Maybe they should tweet to us at Crude Street. They could tweet to us at Food Street. On, 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 on the Twitter. We, we'll, we'll look on the Twitter, Gary. Yeah, we'll see if... Yeah, right, exactly. Us, us older folk. <laughs> on that cheery note, uh, a very happy new year to you and yours. Happy new year to you as well. I know it's much warmer there than it is here. It is indeed. And I guess to the or each and every Cood Street listener, I'm, I know you join me in saying, uh, wishing them a very safe and happy and healthy and successful 2018. Yes. And, and until then. Until then, this has been the Good Street Podcast. <laughs>